Hello everyone, I want to finish out the Street Cruise episode and what I'm about to read to you is going to be more discomforting that I can guarantee. It says, One day me and Wayne went to pick up a bucket he had parked across town. He used the car to stash stuff in, Manny says. Wayne popped the trunk and he had hand grenades, sticks of dynamite, and a rack of guns, coke, and some more shit. We had this other dude with us, too. Wayne threw the dude the keys to the bucket and told him to drive the car back around Potomac Gardens. The dude was like, I can't drive all that shit back around the way. Wayne pulled out his pistol and told the nigga, you better get your ass in that car and take it around the gardens And if the police pull you over, tell them it's my shit. And if they take it, I'm going to kill your motherfucking ass. The nigga got his ass in the car and did exactly what Wayne said. Silk ain't play no games. And dudes were were wise not to fuck with him or try him in, in any way. Because Wayne was quick to expose a dude in a vicious fashion. One thing about Wayne, he went at whoever. If you were supposed to be like that and he had to see you, he was going to knock your head off. You would think he was some big 300-pound nigga. But when you see him, he is this tall, skinny, funny nigga. Always joking and playing, but dangerous. Niggas didn't want to be on his shit list, Manny says. The unfortunate part of this crime world is that you sometimes in telling stories, in reading stories, you have to read things you wouldn't normally say. You have to say things that you would normally read. And no, I'm not dropping the N-word to rub it in white folks' faces. I'm not saying derogatory language just to have a superiority complex. That's not what's happening. There is no trying to hijack a usage of the word and the word itself in order to stick it to any group of people. That's not the objective and that's not even happening or occurring. But I'm being honest about what is difficult to be honest about. And then it gets weirder 
It says, there was no limit to the way Silk played either. He didn't care who you were supposed to be. He was still going to play with you. He would play with you even if you weren't trying to. And if he got serious, he was cool with that too. A lot of times, Wayne would try dudes he didn't like by playing with them. One time, me, Wayne, and two other dudes were in my bins on the way to the mall. Wayne knew that one of the dudes with us wasn't who he thought he was in the streets. The dude was supposed to be a killer, but Wayne could see through him. And here's where the language gets very... disheartening and here's where the language gets us to feel a sense of dismay because in the crime world there are slurs that are historically racist and there are slurs that are historically misogynistic and sometimes people refer to their genitals in such a dicey kind of way. So the the way that people are speaking, this is exactly how the crime world works. And no, it's never a good thing. Okay, this is real. It says, Wayne hated fake niggas. So Wayne started playing with dude trying to provoke him. When the dude gets fed up, he told Wayne to stop playing with him. Wayne said, and it's like reading the language that you would see in a slave narrative. Sometimes the people writing the slave narratives had to report the off color in all the wretched ways type of language to get people to understand this is not how people should talk to each other. This is not how people should treat each other. It's not how people should be seeing each other. It says, Wayne said, nigga, fuck you. I play when I want to. And if I wanted to, I could fuck you. You said, bitch, you should be taking that dick. The dude gets heated and tells Wayne, can't no nigga fuck him. Wayne laughed at him and told him, I ain't no average nigga. I'm silk and if you keep running your mouth, I'ma leave you a fake ass in this back seat with a hole in your head. I tried to tell the dude to leave this shit alone because I saw where it was going. Wayne was going to end up smoking a nigga. The dude wouldn't let it go. His pride was in it. Wayne ended up telling the dude they could fight if he had something he needed to get off his chest. When we got to the mall, Wayne took off his jacket and slapped this shit out of dude. He tried to make the nigga fight him, but the dude wouldn't fight. Wayne looked at us and said, I told y'all this nigga was a bitch. Wayne then pulled out his pistol. It makes the dude strip ass naked right in the parking lot. Then he shot him in the ass and told him to get the fuck away from us. Everybody was laughing. Wayne exposed the nigga. 
It was all a big joke to Silk, a dude from back in the day relates. Wayne was on that extortion time real hard, too. He put me on a nigga one time. He wanted me to learn on the nigga. Another one of Wayne's old partners in crime says, I put the squeeze on the nigga and told him I wanted 50 grand. I worked the move about two or three times and broke down with Silk every time. At the same time, Silk was playing things with the nigga, getting close to him, making him think they were cool. Then Silk acted like he found out I was squeezing the nigga and told the nigga that he would get me to leave him alone for 50 G's. From there, he was milking the nigga for 50 G's anytime he wanted to. He would still hit me off. Silk worked that move so many times on different niggas too, even some niggas that was supposed to be like that. It was like taking candy from a baby for Silk. And when Silk's friend came home from jail, used his reputation to put him back on his feet. I remember when I first came home from Lorton, it was in the halfway house, man, he says. Wayne came to get me and told me to get in his CE and took me uptown. He asked me if I had money. I was just coming home. I was broke. I told him no. So he said he was going to take me to get me to get some money. We pull up in front of a well-known spot that's owned by some dudes that's supposed to be major in the city. Wayne looked at me and said, go in there and tell such and such to send a bag of that money out here. And don't make me come in there and get it either. I thought Wayne was playing. He's a real funny dude, always playing, but he was dead serious. So I went in the spot and told the dude that what Wayne said, and with no problem, the dude gave me a bag full of money. Wayne had niggas scared to death. He didn't stop at street figures when it came to his extortion game either. It said that he went as far as extorting lawyers and Italians in Georgetown too. Silk was cool and calculated, but he also fortified his burgeoning reputation as the most feared man in D.C. with sporadic outbursts of violence that seemed to come out of nowhere with no rhyme or reason. At a spot over southwest on Orange Street, I had a few young dudes hustling for me. Another dude from the era relates, one day Silk came over here. One day Silk came over there to holler at me. And me and Slim was sitting in the apartment talking shit and joking when my little man came in the spot and told me that a New York dude around the corner told him that he couldn't hustle until he was finished with his shit. Me and Wayne looked at each other and shook our heads. Wayne told Shorty to go back outside and stand on the corner and sell his shit. Shorty acted like he was scared, so I told him that if Silk said it was cool, then it was cool. The young dude went back outside and started pumping. As soon as the New York dude bent around the corner to say something to Shorty, Wayne stepped out of the cut beside the building and hit his ass in the head with everything he had in the clip and stepped off with the hammer smoking. When the police and ambulance arrived, Wayne popped back up with a different set of clothes just to see who was talking to the cops. It seemed Wayne did what he did just because he could. His aura of fear was impregnable. Now, let me find the proper adjectives to describe what I just 
read to you all because there are times where even thinking off the top of my head is not always the justice. In terms of vernacular, that could be provided. So what I read to you it are descriptions of evil, the quality of being evil, sin, wickedness, depravity, crime, sinfulness, corruption, vice, immorality, iniquity, perversity, badness, vileness, baseness, meanness, malevolence, indecency, hatred, viciousness, wrongs, debauchery, lewdness, wantonness, grossness, foulness, degradation, obscenity, the antonyms of evil, which are virtue, good, and goodness, right? So there was no virtue, no good, no goodness. There were, there was no virtue, no good, and no goodness. I say again. There was illness, there was harm, there was mischief, there was misfortunes, there was scandals, there was calamities, there was pollution, there was contaminations, there was catastrophes, there were blows, there were disasters, there were plagues, there there was real outrage, there was foul play, there was ill wind, there was crying shame, there was double crossing, there were raw deals. And there were harmful and malicious actions. It's time to read even more. So... It says, Petworth leaders say crews behind surge in violence. Carly Welch, November 30, 2021. As violence between longstanding groups has increased in Petworth, local leaders try to get to the root of the problem by investing time and resources in community outreach programs. Violence has increased in Petworth over the past year, according to the Metropolitan Police Department, and community leaders say the leading cause is violence between crews. Crews are groups of individuals that come from a common block or street and often have tight family connections and roots to the area, says Jasmine Benab, Director of Community Outreach for Mayor Muriel Bowser's office. Crews are informal groups compared to gangs, whereas gangs often have leaders who instruct other members to execute violence. Benab said crews instead carry out their business in a more unorganized manner, often starting on social media. Washington, D.C. has so far reached 204 homicides this year, a 17-year high, according to MPD. Keep in mind, this is happening during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Petworth has seen 90 assaults with a dangerous weapon this year, as of November 29th, surpassing last year's 78 instances according to DC Crime Cards, a data filtering tool offered by MPD. Benab says the cause of the uptick of crew violence cannot be pinpointed to one concrete source. She said the violence seems to stem from arguments between crews regarding who can sell drugs in certain territories. 
Unrelated physical fights between crews also spill out into the streets, she said. Some of these kids don't even know what they're fighting for, Benab said. It's really sad. Benab said the most prevalent crew in Petworth Award 4 is the Kennedy Street crew, which has existed for multiple generations and was widely known in the 1990s for the murders of FBI agents and police officers. MPD declined to comment when asked the number of crews in the neighborhood and declined to comment on the issue of crew violence as a whole. Older crews like Kennedy Street Crew instigate violence among other crews due to generational differences, Paul Johnson and ANC representing FC said. There's folks who were incarcerated, perhaps from the 1990s, 1980s, for very long stretches that are coming back into the community that have long-standing ties to the community and things have changed, Johnson said. There may be tension with respect to people coming home and younger people who are out here. Root of the problem, Johnson said crew violence happens as a result of multiple factors. The most pressing being a disinvestment in communities of color left behind by gentrification. Gentrification pushes families and individuals out of their homes, Johnson said, causing informal support systems like cookouts and block parties to disappear. As a result, youth feel abandoned and often turn to crews, which gives them a sense of belonging. I dare say a warped sense of belonging. Abdul Kareem Muhammad is the CEO and founder of Brotherhood, a nonprofit organization helping youth become involved in community programs and, pre- and preventative activities to avoid violence. Trauma also instigates crew violence, Mama said. By witnessing violence, people can become violent in retaliation or to protect themselves, he said. If you've been a victim of crime or your brother's been murdered or your family member has been murdered, you're on high alert, Muhammad said. It puts you in a fight or flight mode and these young men are choosing to fight. The COVID-19 pandemic has also exacerbated crew violence, Johnson said. He said mental health issues brought on by the pandemic and financial struggles can manifest itself in negative behaviors or negative developments. Muhammad said the pandemic has caused a pandemic of violence and as underrepresented communities disproportionately affected by the pandemic may see more privileged communities recover faster from the pandemic. He said this can cause a feeling of exclusion, which can cause people to act out. Benab John and Muhammad all said community outreach programs are the best way to address the issue of children becoming involved in crew violence. Providing youth with mental health services, trauma response resources, and activities such as sports and clubs are ways they plan to do this. Ward 4 Council member Janice Lewis-George announced yesterday that Cure the Streets DC, an organization dedicated to interrupting violence in neighborhoods that present high levels of violence, will be introduced in Ward 4. She said this program is being introduced in the effort to curb gun violence, especially related to crew violence. Benab said community outreach programs take time. She said by implementing the right time and effort to that, she said by implementing the right time and effort to the outreach programs, children could really benefit. Some of these kids, if you sit down with them, they're the sweetest kids you'll ever meet, Benab said. They're wonderful and think about what they could be doing if they had the resources. They'd be doing some really great things.
So there are people that are reducing the issues in our communities to the best of their abilities and capabilities, and they should be much respected. In D.C. Simple City, complex rules of life and death. This is by Justin Gillis and Bill Miller. This is Washington Post. That's, excuse me, this is by the Washington Post staff writer, Sunday, April 20th, 1997, page A01. An outsider who came to the neighborhood to sell dope, Andrew, Nitt, Andrew Newton, had the sense to wear bulletproof vests. It didn't help. Eyewitnesses later would testify that neighborhood drug dealers, members of a gang known as the Simple City Crew, shot Newton in the throat and left him to die in a puddle of his own blood. He was 18 that blustery November day in 1994. Cabby Richard Johnson was found lying next to a phone booth, a bullet wound to the back of his head. By police accounts, his mistake was to insist on dropping a fare at the bottom of the hill instead of driving to the Benning Hill injury. By police accounts, his mistake was to insist on driving a fare at the bottom of a hill instead of driving into the Benning Terrace public housing complex. Not even the ice cream man was safe. When two men tried to rob Bright Anoa, beloved in the neighborhood for giving treats on credit, he resisted and they shot him to death. Two simple city crew members were convicted. Those are just a handful of the dozens of violent deaths over the last four years in the area nicknamed Simple City, a collection of streets in and around the Benning Terrace complex in the Benning Heights neighborhood. Tragic as the deaths may have been, they did not ripple through the city in the same way as the killing of 12-year-old Daryl Dayon Hall snatched off the street on his snatched off the street on his way home from school in January. A simple fact about Daryl slaying 12 has galvanized the public and the police department to action in a way that death after death of older victims cannot. Plans are afoot for fresh action by prosecutors. Police have saturated the area in the last few months. A neighborhood that long cowered under a violent onslaught slowly has begun to reemerge, pinning its hopes on a fledging truce between two set of street rivals. Remarkably, since Daryl's death, no one else had died. No, remarkably, since Daryl's death, no one else has died in Simple City in a violent rampage. Nowadays, the people who live in the neighborhood are like war survivors coming out of hiding. Verna Henderson, who lives in a home near the housing complex, used to hear gunshots in the night, and she would crawl from the dining room up the steps to her bedroom. She'd say a prayer before she stepped outside to care for her tulips, azaleas, and roses. 
Things are so much better lately that she looks forward to her nightly walks with the Orange Hats neighborhood patrols. I have not heard any gunshots. I can't even remember when I last heard them, Henderson said. And this was an everyday thing. But Henderson and others who live near Simple City aren't relaxing just yet. They've seen how bad things can get. Throughout this decade, police have been called to Simple City to cope with one spate of violence after another. Consider just the first five days of this year. Gunshots on January 1st at 1 a.m. More gunshots the next day at 7.56 p.m. An assault on January 3rd. More gunshots on the evenings of January 4th and January 5th. So then you have nine slaves. And I repeat, and then you have nine slangs. The police believe infighting among factions of the Simple City crew was responsible for nine deaths since May, culminating in Daryl's. The pace escalated through the fall, prosecutors say, when one faction member was killed as he left a funeral home when he'd gone to pay for a slain relative's services. Not even the youngest children have, have been safe. One hot day in June 1993, a Simple City crew member strafed a public swimming pool, sending six youngsters to the hospital. The crew was gunning for a rival who in turn, who it turned out was he wasn't even there at the time. The crowd became a national symbol of gang violence around amok. The president of the United States condemned it. The story of the Simple City crew is, in, is emblematic of a trend that has afflicted large swaths of Washington. Gangs of young toughs known to police as crews are responsible for a rising for a rising proportion of violence in the city's poor neighborhoods. Since the late 1980s, these crews have turned to guns to protect their turf and settle their disputes, their quote unquote beefs or feuds, if you will, with nearby groups. Outsiders and innocents are winding up on the wrong end of those same loaded pistols. U.S. Attorney Eric H. Holder Jr. would not discuss details of Daryl's killing, but he said it was the most publicized slang in the neighborhood with a long history of violence. The nature of the violence is shocking, he said. The amount of the violence is shocking. The period of time over which it, when it, which it's occurred is shocking. The violence is random in some ways, personal in some ways. A lot of this is settling beef, settling scores, Holder said. It's a cycle of violence. People say that term is overused, but I don't think it's inaccurate for what's going on there but i don't think it's inaccurate for what's going on there a lot of it really does feed on itself perhaps the single most alarming fact about the city's crews is that they are drawing younger and younger people into the male storm male male strom the number of people ages 10 to 14 slain in the United States while remaining a relatively small proportion of all homicides rose by 59% from 1985 to 1992. The most striking change in murder victimization since the 1980s is the youthfulness of the, of the victims, the FBI said in a report more than two years ago. Juvenile gang killings accounted for fewer than 1% of all homicides in 1980. Now that figure is approaching 4%. A recent study by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that the United States has by far the highest rate of youth homicide in the industrialized world. Changes in homicide patterns can be seen best over several decades, according to an analysis done for the Washington Post by James Allen Fox. An authority on crime statistics at Northeastern University in Boston 
the median age of all reported homicide victims in the United States fell from 32 in 1976 to 29 in 1995. Fox described that as a dramatic change. The figures for the District of Columbia were even more dramatic. The median age of victims fell by a full decade from 34 in 1976 to 24 in 1995. This suggests that half of all homicide victims in the district are now 24 or younger. The change is equally noticeable in homicide arrests. Fox's analysis shows that the median age for homicide suspects in the United States fell from 27 in 1976 to 24 in 1995. In the same period, the median age of homicide suspects arrested in the district fell from 30 to 21. The figures suggest that about half the district's homicide arrests involve suspects who are 21 or younger. Several specialists caution that the city has in the past done a poor job of collecting and reporting homicide statistics, but they have no doubt that but they have no doubt that the general trends shown by these numbers are real. Crime specialists cite several causes for the rise of homicides among young people. They include the breakdown of the family structure, the growth of criminal gangs as alternative quote-unquote families, the influence of the drug trade, and the spread of guns to youngsters. The specialists warn that the problem is likely to get worse. A report last year by the National Center for Juvenile Justice said that if that if present trends continue, the number of juveniles arrested for violent crime could more than double by 2010. Many people imagine gangs to be highly organized, militaristic groups who, whose purpose in life is to commit crimes such as dealing drugs. That picture may be true in a few places, but not usually. The reality is that most gangs are loosely structured, said Arnold P. Goldstein, a psychologist and gang specialist at Syracuse University. Specialists said these groups don't start out with crime in mind. They begin as identity groups. The boys in a particular neighborhood hang out together and grow fond of one another. Many of them, but not all, eventually turn to low-level drug dealing and other crimes. A lot of these groups are comprised of people who have gone to school together, Holder said. They have established relationships that have spanned their lives. These are not just people happen to get together. The sense of cohesion and of having turf to protect can grow more powerful when a crew develops rivalries with groups from nearby neighborhoods. For several years in the early 1990s, a common enemy for the simple city crew lay across Benning Road in the gang that lived in the rundown public housing complex known as Eastgate. Beginning about 1991, police said the two gangs committed a string of tit-for-tat slangs. During the warfare with Eastgate, according to prosecutor Simple City members, hung shoes on a power line on 46th Street in the middle of their neighborhood, each pair representing someone slain by its members. So many shoes hung there at hung there that at one point the power line sagged from their weight and the power company had to repair it. The blood Shane waned in 1994, said Assistant U.S. Attorney Michael D. Britton, who worked on cases stemming from the Simple City Eastgate battle, but only after the leading Eastgate members were either in prison or dead. The city's public housing agency also gradually shut down the Eastgate complex for renovations. With Eastgate neutered the simple city crew split into factions that turned on each other this time police said the cycle of killing and retaliation produced an extraordinary run of violence that left daryl the ninth young man killed in fighting since may most of the victims in those cases were in their late teens or early 20s and arrests have been made in only three of the slayings it says It says, um, 
Police officer said that as crew members watch friends die around them, some develop a sort of bloodlust as well as a conviction that they would not live long themselves. Some started wearing bulletproof vests every day to get around that and to make sure a victim wouldn't live to testify. Killers learned to shoot people in the head. As the violence became more routine, innocents sometimes got pulled in. That's apparently what happened with the cab driver, Richard Johnson. Police identified a suspect, Johnny Lee Simpson Jr., 18, who they said was active in the Simple City crew at the time of the killing. In an affidavit seeking, in an, affidavit seeking an arrest warrant, police said a witness overheard Simpson boasting shortly afterward, I just bust this bitch-ass cab driver because he was faking on me. I paid him. He would not bring me up the hill. Police eventually jailed Simpson, charging him in that shooting and two others, all instances in which the victims were shot in the head. He recently was acquitted in one case, but faces trial in the Johnson slang in one and one another. And one other, he had pleaded he had pleaded not guilty in both. Simpson's nickname is Benji, and among prosecutors, he has garnered the nickname "Back of the Head Benji." Police believe they know who the killers are in many of the cases of the last few years. They've won some convictions, as they did with the killings of Ice Cream Man, Anoa, and drug dealer Newton. But many other cases have gone on. But many other cases have gone unsolved. It's not that the killings are being committed by master criminals. Many of them are crimes of passion, and opportunity, occurring in broad daylight in front of witnesses. But those witnesses usually live in the neighborhood, and they have powerful reasons for not wanting to get on the bad side of a crew. They often refuse to cooperate with police. You get the names, you know who did it, said Walter Staples, a retired district homicide surgeon. The problem is fettering out people are willing to testify in court. For this reason, crew members sometimes remain on the loose even after police strongly suspect them of killings. Some cases are closed only when the suspect is himself gunned down. Once a guy's dead, everybody will tell you what he did, Staples said. A deterrent force. Now, the attention that attended Daryl Slang has put gang violence back on the front burner in Washington, D.C. The police department is dedicating some 50 additional officers to a citywide assault on gang violence. The stepped-up police presence already said established a deterrent force that was never before there. And it contributes to the new calm. But law enforcement sources said they are concerned that violence will resume as people are arrested for the earlier crimes. Holder has put extra manpower into cracking down on the Simple City crew, but it will take time to build cases given that Simple City members either die or go to jail, as one investigator said, rather than testify against one another. This makes it extremely difficult to unravel the overall pattern of violence as was done in other neighborhoods with the help of gang members who became cooperative witnesses. These cases are never easy to make, Holder said. He noted that it took years for authorities to develop successful federal conspiracy cases against other notorious city gangs, including the Newton Street Crew, R Street Crew, and Fern Street Crew. You've got a relatively small number of people and groups committing a disproportionately large number of crimes, Holder said. The Metropolitan Police Department's intelligence unit does a good job of identifying the groups. What remains to be seen is how effective we'll be dismantling them. So staff writers Marcia Slackham-Green, Nancy Lewis, Robert Pierre and Doug struck contributed to this report. So yeah, victims of Simple City Warfare, the recent slaying of 12-year-old Daryl Dayon Hall was the latest in a series of nine killings that police say they believe are tied to fighting within the Simple City crew. Authorities say the violence began last spring between two factions of Simple City, one known as the Alabama Avenue Group and the other as the Circle Group. 
five members of the circle and three from the avenue have been fatally shot, as has a bystander. Police believe the fighting led to these deaths. Eugene Tyler Nixon, 19, killed May 10. Nixon was shot several times while inside a car in the floor, 4400 block of G Street Southeast. Nixon lived in the 1900 block of Valley Terrence Southeast, was part of the Alabama Avenue faction of Simple City, police said. Nixon's acquaintances blame the circle group for, the, for his killing, but police aren't so certain. His killing remains an open case. Juan A. Pulliam, 20, killed May 25th. Pulliam, who authorities said was a member of the circle faction, was shot repeatedly in the head and body by a man who approached him in the 600 block of 46th place southeast. Police said the gunman kept firing even after Pulliam fell to the ground. Police have arrested Michael Watson, 28, of the 5300 block of East Street Southeast. He is in jail awaiting trial in the slang. He has pleaded not guilty. Eugene Andrew Williams Jr., 36, killed June 25th. Williams, a mechanic who lives in a simple city neighborhood, was caught in crossfire between warring, warring parties in the 4700 block of Alabama Avenue Southeast, police said. He was an innocent victim not tied to the crew, investigators said. His case remains open. Joe Lester Payne Jr., 19, killed October 9th. Payne known, Payne, known as Little Joey, was shot in the head in the 4600 block of G Street Southeast. Investigators said he was part of the Circle faction and lived in the area. He had been released from jail less than six weeks before his slaying. After his acquittal in D.C. Superior Court of a charge of first-degree murder, his killing remains open. Antoine Cunningham, 19, killed October 12th. Cunningham was part of the Alabama Avenue faction. Another man was shot in the 4700 block of Alabama Avenue southeast near Cunningham's home. Authorities said the case was closed with the subsequent killing of suspect Roscoe Mobley, they said. Clarence T Taylor, 21, killed November 13th. Taylor, who authorities said was part of the Circle faction, was sitting on his porch in the 4300 block of F Street southeast when a man walked up to him and shot him in the back of the head. A second person then opened fire, hitting Taylor in the body. His slang took place a few years after another reported. His slang took place a few years after another reputed member of the circle group was shot and seriously wounded, allegedly by two members of the Alabama Avenue faction. In Taylor's case, police arrested John L. Schuler, 23, allegedly a leader of the Alabama Avenue faction. He has pleaded not guilty to a charge of first-degree murder. Police have not identified Schuler's alleged accomplice. Gary Washington, 26, killed November 17th. Washington, who authorities said was part of the Circle faction, was killed outside a funeral home at 50th Street and Annie Helen Burroughs Avenue Southeast. Authorities said he is related to Clarence Taylor and has just, had just paid for Taylor's funeral. The case remains open. And investigators say they are still considering a variety of possible motives. Roscoe Jerome Mobley, 22, killed November 26. Mobley, nicknamed Rock, was part of the Circle faction. Investigators said he was shot in the 600 block of 46th Street Southeast, a short distance from his home. Authorities said he was killed in retaliation for Cunningham's death. The case remains open. Daryl Dayon Hall, 12, killed January 15th. 
Darrell, who investigated said was associated with the Alabama Avenue faction, was abducted at gunpoint and taken to a ravine near the 800 block of Burn Street Southeast. He was shot in the head and body. Authorities said he was apparently was killed in retaliation for shooting at members of the Circle faction. Four people have been arrested on first-degree murder charges and are awaiting trial. All have pleaded not guilty. This was all, again, Sunday, April 20th, 1997. And I do want to make it clear. That life. Is not pretty. I repeat. Life can get. Life can be a dirty ass damn shame. That's all I can say. Beef between two DC crews led to Tyson's Mall shooting police as Jack Moore, June 23rd, 2022, 1.24 p.m. Police in Fairfax County, Virginia say a shooting Saturday afternoon at Tyson's Corner Center that sent panic shoppers fleeing was a result of beef between two rival D.C. crews who encountered each other on the small second floor. The two crews, the 37th Street crew and the Simple City crew, which both operate out of southeast Washington, D.C., were engaged in a beef. Fairfax County Police Chief Kevin Davis said during a news conference Thursday, it started with words. It ended up with a pushing and shoving match and a display of a firearm, Davis said. And then just minutes later, three shots ring out, three shots in a crowded mall. No one was wounded by gunfire, but the shooting sparked panic as shoppers and mall employees fled for the exits or sheltered in nearby stores. Three people were taken to the hospital with injuries. Noah Settles, 22 of D.C., who Davis said is associated with the 37th Street crew, was the shooter, according to police. Settles turned himself in Wednesday evening. He has been charged with attempted malicious wounding, discharging a weapon into an discharging a weapon into an occupied building and use of a firearm in the commission of a felony. <laughs> the chief said mall surveillance cameras clearly captured Settles as brandishing the gun and pulling the trigger later fleeing the mall in a black Cadillac. Thankfully, Tyson's has made a big public safety investment with cameras. Thank God that they have, Davis said. Neither the gun nor the Cadillac have been recovered, Davis said. Davis said it's not known what sparked the confrontation between the two groups or whether they each knew the other would be there before they encountered each other. Each group was made up of about four to five people. The 37th Street crew was dressed in black. The Simple City crew wore white. What starts as an what starts as a look or a gesture or, or a smirk or an eye roll turns into a verbal altercation and words turn into pushing and shoving. And if it stopped there, that wouldn't be ideal. But if it stopped there, that'd be a hell of a lot better than an altercation like this ending with gunfire. In response to a question from a reporter about whether Settles may have been acting in self-defense, Davis said after the pushing and shoving, Settles pulled out the firearm and, then, and the two groups separated. Minutes went by and the two groups were roughly a football field apart when Settles pulled out the gun again and fired, Davis said. I think a self-defense claim is certainly one that he has the right to make, David said. I think it's a hell of an uphill battle, in my opinion. 
No other arrests have been made, but there's every possibility that additional criminal charges against others may occur, Davis said. Settles, a rap artist who goes by the name No Savage, was identified by police today after the shooting as, as the suspected gunman. In response to a question from a reporter about Settles is apparently posting on social media while police were looking for him and even live streaming his arrest, Davis said police were aware of Settles' public postings. That's unusual, certainly, he said. Following the gunfire, the mall was closed for nearly 24 hours as police investigated and interviewed witnesses. Tyson's Corner Center, the largest mall in the D.C. area with dozens of stores across three stories and more than two million square feet, has a dedicated unit of the Fairfax County Police Department assigned to it. When a crisis like this happens, we take it very, very seriously, Davis said. He said he's re- he received many personal phone calls asking whether the mall is safe. And the answer is, of course, it is. It's safe today. It's going to be safe tomorrow. He added, we're committed to keeping Tyson's the best retail entertainment shopping district in the entire Washington metropolitan area. And that's our commitment. What I have to say is that you're what you're hearing extermination, annihilation, and wreckage. You're you're hearing defaulters, tax evaders, offenders, dropouts, reprobates, loafers, derelicts, bad debtors, poor risk, felons, lawbreakers, wrongdoers, sinners, juvenile offenders, juvenile delinquents, JDs, outlaws, the black sheep, criminals. And punks. That was what I have to say about those articles. And so, let me see. I'm doing good on time. I'll end with this. It says, National Drug Intelligence Center, District of Columbia Drug Threat Assessment, January 2002. The District of Columbia, D.C. is an ethically, culturally, and economically diverse 68-square-mile federal district with over 572,000 residents. If D.C. were a state, it would rank 50th by population ahead of only Wyoming. Washington, D.C.'s role as the nation's capital and as a focal point for the world's political, diplomatic, and financial activities enhances the district's diversity. Attracting inhabitants from throughout the country and the world, D.C. provides an ideal setting for criminal groups to blend in easily. Population 2,572,000. U.S. population ranking 50th relative to states. Median household income $2,040,000. Unemployment rate 2001 was 6.6%. Land area 68 square miles. Principal industries, government, service, tourism. The district has a large population of drug abusers and a high level of violence associated with the distribution of illegal drugs. According to the National Drug Intelligence Center, NDIC, National Drug Threat Survey 2001, the U.S. Park Police reported that 31% of its 1,583 D.C. investigations were 
drug-related. Many were for poly drug distribution and involved the use of firearms. The threat posed by drug distribution and abuse to the safety and security of district residents is illustrated by the district's high homicide rate. Although the number of homicides in D.C. have decreased from an annual high of almost 500 a decade ago to 232 in 2000, shooting incidents remain frequent and many district residents live in fear of becoming victims of random violence. The district has a wide array of transportation options available for both illicit and illicit activities, making D.C. an important node in the drug transportation network along the eastern seaboard of the United States. Transporters use an extensive highway system, three major airports near the district, Washington, Dulles, and Baltimore, Washington International Airports, and Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport, and the railroads to ensure that drugs transported to and from the area have an excellent chance of reaching their intended destination. Thousands of thousands of travelers from all over the world pass through the three airports daily. Arrests and seizure data indicate that the three airports are being used to smuggle drugs from source and transit countries to the district. Interstates 295 and 395 provide direct access to I-495, which encircles the district, and to I-95, the major north-south route on the east coast. U.S. Highways 129 and 50 also provide access to I-95 and I I-495, I-95. Drugs are frequently transported in private vehicles and to a lesser extent by rail and bus services to and from the district. Many transporters reportedly purchase false identification in which they register private vehicles used to transport drugs. Maritime smuggling directly into D.C. is unlikely since the few commercial maritime shipments into the area originate in domestic locations. The small port of Alexandria, Virginia, is the only commercial maritime cargo facility in the D.C. metropolitan area. An average of 23 vessels visit the port annually. Longshoremen at the port handled approximately 26,000 tons of cargo in 1999. The only international seaport near D.C. is the Port of Baltimore, a port through which thousands of tons of containerized and bulk cargo move daily. However, seizures of drugs are infrequent. Transporters are more likely to smuggle drugs to ports that handle a large volume of international cargo daily and provide more transportation options, such as the consolidated New York slash New Jersey seaport. D.C. is a secondary drug distribution center. With most drugs destined for distribution in D.C., first smuggled to New York, Philadelphia, Miami, and Los Angeles, among other cities. Drug trafficking organizations, DTOs, and criminal groups that work directly with DTOs in source countries such as Columbia Supply DC-based distribution groups. The distribution groups range from wholesale-level criminal groups to local neighborhood-based crews, a term frequently used to describe gangs in DC and independent dealers. Most investigations feel that wholesale-level distributors directly supply retail-level distributors. The district has approximately 60 open-air drug markets, some as large as two to three blocks that are controlled by crews. Open-air markets are typically located near low-income housing projects and on main corridors into and out of the city. Most open-air markets operate 12 or more hours a day, seven days a week. Crews sell primarily crack at open-air markets, however, powdered cocaine, heroin, marijuana, methamphetamine, and other dangerous drugs, ODDs, are also available. Law enforcement officials report that marijuana is available with increasing frequency at these markets. However, individual sales at open-air markets may involve no more than half a pound of marijuana, 
because of legislation that became effective in D.C. in June 2001, making penalties for distribution and possession of marijuana much more severe than they had been previously. Now the now they have relaxed the weed laws. Um, it's legal to smoke it and to have it. It's just that in certain areas, they're like, we want you to be mindful. You can't do it everywhere in D.C., but in certain parts of D.C., you can. Open Air Drug Investigation in D.C. On July 13, 2000, federal and local law enforcement officials arrested 37 individuals and seized $30,000 worth of crack, $70,000 in cash, and 13 guns, including an assault rifle and an Uzi-style weapon. The arrests and seizures were the result of a year-long investigation that focused on open-air drug markets in the 1st, 3rd, and 5th police districts. So the source was Office of National Drug Control Policy, Drug Policy Information Clearinghouse, Washington, D.C., August 2000. So, (sighs) local neighborhood-based crews that are unaffiliated with nationally recognized gangs usually dominate retail drug distribution in the district. Law enforcement officials usually assign the names by which crews are known based on the streets and housing developments in which members of crews live and distribute drugs. According to the Metropolitan Police Department, crews from primarily for economic gain and change composition regularly. Many crews distribute crack and they frequently distribute other drugs as well. They maintain control of their markets by preventing nationally recognized street gangs from entering the area and they will fight and kill to defend their quote-unquote turf. No single crew appears to control or dominate the distribution of drugs throughout the district. Some reports indicate that as many as 150 crews, averaging each averaging 20 to 30 members, distribute drugs and engage in additional criminal activities. The NDIC National Gang Survey 2005, 42 crews that distribute cocaine in D.C., and most of these crews distribute heroin and marijuana as well. 41 of them are African-American and one, Lamara R., is Hispanic. Crews known to distribute drugs in D.C. One to five mob, first in T Street crew, seventh in I Street crew, twelfth in Hamlin Street crew, 57th Street mob, Alabama Avenue crew, East Street crew, Langston crew, Michigan Park crew, Queen Street crew, Todd Place crew, one to seven crew, third world, seventh and O Street crew, thirteenth Street crew, fifty-eighth Street crew, I'm sorry, fifty-eighth Street Mob, Barry Farms crew, Hobart Stars, Levis Street crew, Montana Avenue crew, Rock Creek Church crew, Woodland Boys, first and O crew, fifth and O Street crew, seventh and S Street crew, fifteenth and Clifton Street crew. 1512 crew, the Circle Slash Simple City crew, Hux crew, Lincoln Heights crew, Naylor Road crew, Rosedale crew, 1st and Seton Place crew, 6th and S Street crew, 7th and Taylor crew, 20th Street crew, 6200 crew, Congress Park crew, Lamar R, Mellon Mob, Park Morton crew, Stanton Terrace crew. The percentage of drug-related federal offenses in D.C. in 1999 was slightly lower than the national average, as were the percentages by drug-type crack is the exception. 
Drug-related sentences represented over 33% of all federal sentences in the district in 1999, compared with the national average of 41%. Additionally, over 75% of all drug-related sentences were crack-related, much higher than the national average of 23%. The sources, National Drug Intelligence Center, National Gang Survey 2000. According to an official from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, approximately 60,000 drug abusers, over 10% of the district's population, reside in the district. D.C. had more drug treatment admissions in 1999 than it did during any other year from 1994 to 1998. The number of annual drug admissions to publicly funded facilities in D.C. increased approximately 510% from 1996 to 1999, according to treatment episode data set TED's data. The district had 979 admissions in 1996, 2,885 in 1997, 3,618 in 1998, and 6,595 in 1999. Conversely, the number of drug-related deaths in the district metropolitan area decreased from 281% Minneapolis had the largest decrease, 17%. A significant percentage of the drug's budget is used for drug treatment programs. The National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia. A significant percentage of the drug... A significant percentage of the district's budget is used for drug treatment programs. The National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University reported that D.C. spent $777 per person in 1998 on substance abuse-related services more than any state in the nation. The district government spent approximately 15% of its 1998 budget on substance abuse-related programs that focus on justice, education, health, child-slash-family assistance, mental health-slash-developmental disabilities, employment, and public safety issues. D.C. was fifth in the nation in percentage spent following New York, Massachusetts, Minnesota, and California. So, these things are definitely discouraging, disheartening, saddening, dismal, casting down, and quite dejecting. Because of deterioration, worsenings, decreasing depreciation, and the lessening of moral goodness.